Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. You can find out more about Creating a Family at our website, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about adopting a child from another state. We will be talking with Shantili Wahejasingha. She is a Master's of Social Work and a Master's of Public Health and the Interim Director of Adoptions and Foster Care at Vista Del Mar Child and Family Services. We will be also talking with Jim Thompson. He is an adoption, foster care, and assisted reproduction attorney at Thompson and Dove Law Group. He is also a fellow at the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys. Welcome Chantilly and Jim to Creating a Family. I'm so glad to talk to you. We get so many questions about adopting a child from another state, and there's a real need for good information out there. We're going to divide this show into two segments, one infant adoption, and the second one adopting from foster care. There's similarities and there are differences between those two types of adoption. But I think that people who are listening will get something out of both, even if you're only interested in adopting an infant through private infant adoption, I still think you will get some information that will be helpful for you uh, by the adopting from foster care and vice versa. All right, so we're going to start with infant adoption. Chantilly, I'm going to give you the easiest question of all, and that is, is it possible to adopt an infant from another state? It is absolutely possible. We we carry out plenty of infant adoptions through ICPCs uh, every week. So yeah, it happens fact, for sure. It's very common, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, so Jim, uh, the, the, how does a prospective adoptive parent find an expectant mother in another state who might be considering placing her child for adoption? Well, the, the, the various opportunities are, are seemingly um, endless. Um, there are a lot of prospective adoptive parents who do their own networking, if you will through family and friends, and there may be a word of mouth process where you hear of a woman in another state who is experiencing perhaps an unplanned pregnancy and is considering an adoption plan for her child. And if that's the case, then um, likely the child would be born there, but the prospective adoptive parents are somewhere else. And so that would be an interstate compact case. There are also agencies um, have clients um, around the country. And there's certainly national agencies that um, have prospective adoptive parents, not only in their, this, their state of licensure. And then there's some agencies that have licensures in more than one state. So all of those are instances where the interstate compact might be implicated if a child is moving from state A to state B. And let me just say that when we, we've mentioned a couple of times the compact or the interstate compact, that is the interstate compact for the placement of children, and it goes by the acronym ICPC, and we're going to talk about that in depth here in just a minute. But before we get to that, Chantilly, how does the domestic infant adoption process differ when an adoptive parent lives in one state and the expected mom lives in a different state? Well, I would say the the first thing that comes to mind is the the in-person involvement, of course, differs. Um, so 
uh, if if there were going to be visits or if there's a relationship that would involve that, um, like meetings beforehand, uh, it might not be as frequent as it would be if someone was in the same state or local. Um, so I know oftentimes when there's an open relationship with expectant parents that are local, adoptive parents will take them to doctor's appointments, take them out to lunch and just foster that relationship that way. But when it's an interstate, um, it's, that piece might just be done more through FaceTime. And now with in this time of coronavirus, that is kind of the typical way either way. Um, but that's, that's one piece that I think um, it differs. Uh, then okay. when we think about the actual uh, ICPC process, uh, parents, adoptive parents have an additional wait time to return home. So it's not only waiting for their child to be discharged from the hospital, but then there's an additional process um, after that before they're able to cross over state lines, which I'm sure we'll get into in a bit. And then also, I would say that the cost might differ a bit as well, um, because there are going to be additional costs with travel and lodging and then some ICPC fees as well. Okay, so you could be matched with a, uh, an expectant mom, but the the initial getting to know you period and her getting to know you as well, and the, you getting to know the adoptive parents, getting to know the the mom, and the mom getting to know the prospective adoptive parents, is going to take place electronically, probably by video, at least initially. Although I, I think it is not uncommon for adoptive parents to fly to meet an expectant mom in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but but hence. It's recommended. Yeah, hence your point about cost, because you know, obviously, that is uh, not an inexpensive thing as well. Chantilly, do you mm-hmm. see that expectant uh, parents? Does it ever happen that the expectant parents uh, fly the, uh, not the expectant parents, the adoptive parents fly the expectant parents to meet them and at in their, where the state they live and and see where the child would be raised, or is that less common? Um, I would say it's less common, but I have had a few cases where that's that's occurred um, because it's also an opportunity for the expectant mom to maybe have a little break from whatever life she's experiencing at home and to to have a little escape for a little bit. And like you said, to be able to witness what the child's life would look like um, mm-hmm. in, in the family that they've chosen. Okay. Okay, now we're going to come to the time where we've we've been leading up to this, the all-important interstate compact for the placement of children, ICPC. Jim, what is that, first of all? Is it a law? Is it, what is it? Well, it is a compact, C-O-M-P-A-C-T, a compact among the 50 states. It was first drafted in 1960. It works its way through to be approved by um, all of the 50 states. And so now it is a, an agreement about the rules, about how a child will move from one state to another. And what's important about um, the compact is the way it is written, if one violates the, the compact, the ICPC, and by the way, we'll use those terms interchangeably, the Interstate Compact on the Placement of Children, ICPC, or the compact, it is a violation of the laws of both the sending and the receiving state. So when one violates the compact, 
you're not only violating your own state laws, but the laws of where the child, um, the, the other, if you will, state be as well. So, Jim, we know that that our we, I know, and, and I think our audience might know that adoption is governed by state law, which means that we have fifty different adoption, well, even more, if you take into account uh, territories in D.C. and others. We have at least fifty, fifty plus adoption laws in the United States. So, what law governs the adoption if the expectant mom lives in one state and the adoptive parents live in another state, what law do you follow? Really good question and an important question. Um, when you asked um, Chantilly a moment ago about domestic infant adoption process, everything she said was absolutely accurate. And in addition to that, if we are, let's say, a prospective adoptive parent living in South Carolina, um, where I live, but that there is a a uh, expectant mother due to deliver in our sister state of Georgia, what law governs? And it can be really important because in South Carolina, for instance, we don't have a waiting period before a uh, birth mom can sign that consent. We also don't have a revocation period, but in Georgia, there is a revocation period. And And that's four days. In North Carolina, it's seven days. In Maryland, it's 30 days. So the the state where the that will the jurisdiction, the choice of law is another way of talking about that, is awfully important for the prospective adoptive parents to consider. Yeah. Because you usually it's gonna be where the case is filed is the law that governs. So, for instance, South Carolina, we have a statute that any child born here, the finalization must be here. So let's say there's a family living in Nebraska who comes to South Carolina for that adoptive placement, we must do the ICPC to allow them to go home, but they'll remain in Nebraska for three or four or five months or so for the post-placement supervision and requiring the family then to return to South Carolina for the finalization. Under those circumstances, South Carolina law would govern and not Nebraska law. So one has to be cognizant of the inner workings of the different state laws. And the states differ significantly, more than people realize, as to the the state laws on adoption differ. Uh, And I think that people assume that they're going to be very similar, and they can be quite different. Quite different also about birth father issues. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a a very important issue, um, how it's addressed. Some states are strict in terms of a, of a birth mom identifying a birth father. Other states, such as South Carolina, consider it a liberty right for her not to identify the birth father if he has not been actively engaged during the pregnancy or providing pregnancy-related support. So if your adoption can feel very different based on the state law of where that, where that occurs. Okay, Chantilly, what are the steps on the ICPC, uh, as it applies to domestic infant adoption? Sure. So essentially, when I describe the ICPC, I I think of it as just a huge packet of paperwork that's compiled that will include various documents, such as the adoptive parent's home study, a clearance letter stating whatever background clearances were made, 
a post supervision, a post placement supervision letter. So once a child is placed in the home, there needs to be some post placement visits that occur with the family. And so it's a letter stating what agency is going to do that. And it's a promise to be able to do that. Um, so it's a number of documents, including hospital discharge paperwork for the baby that is compiled either by the the attorney or the agency in the state where the child was born or where the adoption is is taking place. Then that paperwork is sent to the ICPC office of that state, which we'll call the sending state because that's where the baby is going to be to a different state, right? So that ICPC office will review all of the paperwork and make sure that it has met all of the requirements for the ICPC regulations of that state. And so let's just say it's an adoption between South Carolina and California, because that's who's here today. Um, So the sending pen would then send this ICPC packet after approving everything to the California ICPC office. And then that California ICPC office will review all of the documents, make sure that everything is there that's required for for our state laws. And then once once that's clear, we'll sign off on that, approve it. And that is when a family is able to cross over state lines with the child to return home. Okay. So it has to be approved. If I'm understanding you correctly, it has to be submitted to both. Let's use your example. Baby born Mm -hmm. in South Carolina, adoptive parents living in California. The paperwork has to be approved by both the ICPC office in South Carolina and the ICPC office in North Carolina. Did I understand you correctly? Yes. Yeah. In California, if that was the receiving state. California. Mm -hmm. What did I say? I think I said that came. Yeah. Get my states (laughs) confused. Yes. California. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, so yeah. it's a pile of of paperwork that is mm-hmm. uh, ultimately it's to it's to make certain that the that a child born in a state is is legally transferred to another state and that the best interest of the child is being attended to. Uh, is is Jim? Is that the basic purpose behind it? Yes, it is. It's all about the child's best interest. It, it's a recognition that sometimes the the proper placement for a child is in state and sometimes out of state and that um, that we need to facilitate permanency the best way we can. It also is a way of protecting prospective adoptive parents about costs and fees and expenses, making sure that there's financial protection to make sure that all of that is, is on the up and up. We also look to see if the child's medical and social history, the, the child's story, if you will, is a good fit for the prospective adoptive parents. You know, if a child is a, an African-American child and the child is being proposed to be placed with a Caucasian family, has that family been approved for adoption of a child of color? Have they gone through the, the steps to prepare themselves for the differences that, that, that come with a conspicuous adoption? If a child has special needs, has that family been approved through their home study to meet that child's needs. So in many respects, it, there's another layer of protection. And um, I actually think sometimes it's a, it does take a little while. It, it might be considered a bit bureaucratic in the sense that both states must sign off, but it is not particularly a lengthy process. And when you've been approved by, by your state for ICPC and the sending state for ICPC, there's a sense of 
finality to that permanency or kind of a reassurance that comes with it. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful process and is rarely, though there are some occasions that we can discuss, but rarely is it a cause for alarm. Are there additional requirements that are instituted? Who, who, who makes a determination what type of training the adoptive parents would have received, let's say for, uh, well, let's say a, a white family adopting a black child, a black infant. What if the right. the adoption agency has already done their thing, and I pray that they would have required training, and I know that both of you guys do require training, but there are some agencies who don't require much training. So let's say that the agency didn't require much training on that. Is it the ICPC office? Is they the ones who come back and say, no, you've got to train this family? Will they stop it and say, no, this family needs more training? Is that how that happens, Jim? Um, I have I have never had a an ICPC case where the receiving state, for instance, which would be the the state of the prospective adopting parents, if there if that was a home study approved by the sending state, I haven't had the I'm sorry the receiving state. I haven't had the the sending state to you know cast aspersions on that on that decision. I have had ICPC offices step in the way as to other legal issues, such as whether the birth father will be named, whether the birth father will be notified, and some other issues in that regard, where it's perhaps a gray area between what a one ICPC offices would like to see and what another ICPC office requires. But when it comes to home studies, I think it's typically a deference is given to the to the state where the the home study was performed. Wonder if Chantilly has had different experience. Yeah, Chantilly, how about you? Yes. Um, well, thinking specifically around transracial adoption, I've um, on the receiving end, I've had um, a state notice that a family wasn't approved for a certain race, and so before we could do, basically in that case, we'll do an addendum to the home study. But before I would amend anything in the home study, I did a private training with the family on transracial adoption and made sure that they understood the special considerations around that. And then following that training, I did an addendum to their home study and submitted that to the ICPC and it was approved. And similarly, I requested the same of another agency or ICPC saying, hey, this family's home study hasn't approved them for a child of this particular background, whether it's their race or medical history. Um, and I, I won't tell them what they need to do, but I'll say at the end of the day, the home study needs to state that they are prepared to take a child on with these background factors. So I have had that. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a moment to let you know of a terrific course we've just added to our Adopted Online Education Center. It's titled Preparing Kids Already in the Home for an Adoption. You know, it's easy to be so excited about bringing home a new baby or child that we forget that we may need to do some proactive work to prepare our existing kiddos for this new arrival. This is especially the case if the new child will be past infancy. You can find this course by going to our where all of our online learning education centers are, and that is adoptioned 
adoptioned.org. That's adoptioned.org. Chantilly, how long should adoptive parents expect the ICPC process to take? And keeping in mind that during this process, most often the adoptive parents have gone, well, maybe, maybe start, let me start with this question. Uh, while this process is going, uh, is taking place, do the, are the adoptive parents in the, where the, uh, have they gone to the state where the baby is born and do they have custody of the baby during this time while the ICPC process takes place? Right. So typically a baby with an infant domestic adoption, when the baby is discharged from the hospital, they are discharged directly to the adoptive parents. And different states handle this differently, but typically they are given um, power of attorney or some kind of medical authorization for the kiddo. So they would have medical custody of the child, um, typically in my experience. I usually prepare adoptive parents to uh, be ready to stay there for about two weeks. But I, I like to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. <laughs> you and my grandma. Yeah. Um, that was her theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. But I'll say usually we are able to process ICPCs within a couple of days after the child is discharged from the hospital, because that's usually the last piece that we need in terms of documentation for the ICPC, either the relinquishment or consent from the, the relinquishing parent or the, the medical, um, the discharge paperwork for the baby. So typically within a few days after that, depending on the states, we can process the ICPC to clear them to come home. But things happen. So I, I just always say two weeks to families to best prepare them. And that's tough in a sense because they're not at home. They're uh, have a newborn and they're either in uh, a uh, Airbnb or VRBO or a hotel room someplace mm-hmm. parenting a newborn in completely strange environments and, and oftentimes without a support system because their support system is at home. So that's a, that's a tough. On the other hand, they can also look upon it as a time just to have some time without the hubbub of their normal life and to just focus on getting to know this little new being. And and so it's not all negative. We try to tell people to try to look at the positive there. This is, you know, your whole life is on hold right now. And all you have to do is, is feed diaper and love on this baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I'll reframe it and say, you know, treat this as a baby moon. You know, you're having your time with your baby. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. Yeah. I've had yeah. families who we told you know to, to to have a two week span, sort of on the outside of things, because of course I've I've learned long ago to be a successful lawyer, you just set people's expectations realistically, <laughs> and then if you can beat them, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here late here lately, I have to admit though, COVID has, in my judgment, sped things up. Um, I, I don't know if it's People are working from home and they, they're able to just look at the, the packet because they, they don't have other um, concerns other than what came to them or, or what it might be. I also think we're all looking for a way to show a little kindness to one another and during these, these days. And I'm, I'm finding a lot of ICPC offices are really expediting things. Um, they always seem to expedite things around holidays, you know, to get somebody home. And I've had a few times where we've gotten approval so fast that 
the, the adoptive parent said, well, I'm not going to tell my family yet. <laughs> so they they want to they want to stay at the beach or wherever and uh, have some of that uh, bonding time before they head home. Well, Jim, you raise an interesting question. Do you have to stay in the city where the baby is born, or can you go no. to something within driving distance? Or do you even need to be with driving distance? Can you be? Uh, can you fly to another area of the state and spend your time there as long as you're within the state? Well, you know, I'm from South Carolina, and there's no place further than four hours away from the next. So that's pretty easy, and a lot of folks would go. And so, yes, you can stay anywhere in the state. I, I will tell you, you know, I, I, my dad um, started our law firm, and he did adoption hearings until he was 94, and he just passed oh, wow. away two years ago. So he has an, a, a long history of ICPC, and in the early days he would probably tell you that he would tell people to stay in the state and then give them a little wink and people would go wherever they wanted to go. Oh, well, boy, think things have changed. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I, was I will say, tell you. Yeah. That I did never have heard of that. Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, remember he was doing this many years ago. Yeah. Um, got the, it. Got the, it. The ICPC was only in effect 1960 South Carolina only recognized it in 1980. And then in, in many years, it took a while for it to gain teeth. But now mm -hmm. it has teeth. Um, <laughs> so much so that uh, you could really jeopardize an adoption. I know of some antidotal stories that, that didn't make it up on appeal um, in South Carolina, where um, a, a family's placement was jeopardized because they returned too quickly. I know of a state where the ICPC office asked me to see receipts for my clients to prove that they had remained in the state um, when they thought that there was evidence that they may have left because they were they were it was one state away. So it's the I guess the bottom line is take it seriously. Yes. Um, do, do not jeopardize it. And it also for an agency or for a law firm, it is a reasonable basis to take an agency's license or a law license for a flagrant violation of the ICPC. So it, it really makes a difference. And, and, and you, you mentioned earlier, but I want to go back and just make sure I've given the full import of the definition of ICPC, Dawn, if I may. Sure. It please. says that no sending agency shall send, bring, or cause to be sent are brought into any other party state, any child for placement in foster care or as a preliminary to a possible adoption, unless the sending agency shall comply with each and every requirement of the ICPC. So it's it's not just for adoption, it's, it's the preliminary to a possible adoption implicates the ICPC. Okay, so Chantilly in a state as large as California, do you tell people who are, this is when California is the sending state, so the baby has been born in California, the adoptive parents have received custody as a child, leaves the hospital, uh, hopefully has some type of medical power of attorney or, or so that they can make medical decisions. Do you tell them that they need to stay uh, near where the, the city the baby has been born at, or can they, as long as they're in California, they are welcome to travel? As long as they're in California, they're they're welcome to travel around, um, especially 
if they have family that they might want to stay with while they wait for the ICPC to be approved. Uh, California is huge, so um, yeah. they have a little bit of wiggle room there to be able to see the sites and um, just stay with whoever they, they might have as a support here. Yeah, you know, the hard part is that you think, oh, gosh, I could I could you know, travel and I could see, I could do stuff. But if you're, especially if this is your first baby, oftentimes you don't feel comfortable enough to say, okay, let's just mm-hmm. pack up, hit the road and go, go traveling. Yeah. That's uh right. Second or third child, maybe, but that first child, <laughs> probably not. Yeah. I actually did want to point out that I do also advise families that when they are traveling home with baby to make sure that they have some adoption paperwork handy um, if they are questioned at at the airport about who this child is and and whatnot. Um, and especially if the child is less than 14 days old, to have a note from the pediatrician or from the doctor saying that the baby is clear to fly uh, because some airlines won't allow a baby to fly without um, a note from a doctor. So... Well, you, you, yeah, that's a great segue into what, so for the actual traveling home, so the family has, the ICPC process is over with, the family now has to get back home. Chantilly, you were mm-hmm. saying that you, they need to have their uh, adoption paperwork in hand. They have, mm-hmm. now it seems interesting to me that somebody would even question it because a family traveling with a baby, how do they know if a baby, you know, hasn't, that the, the baby had not been born to that family, but nonetheless, the adoption paperwork, the adoption is not finalized at that point. So what other paperwork do they need to have with them in case any questions are asked? Because it's not a final adoption at that state, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. So um, either if they're able to have, uh, there's a document from the ICPC called the 100A. That's one document that shows that placement has been given. Um, alternatively, the agency or the attorney might have drawn up a placement agreement for the family. Well, they should have uh, because it's part of the ICPC approval too. Um, so having that placement agreement would be would be great to have. And also I will write travel letters for families who are traveling just as an agency saying that this family has adopted this child and the adoption will be finalized, anticipated date. Um, and so if they have any questions, I give them my direct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of that is the paperwork you need, and including taking the child to a pediatrician or maybe telehealth could mm-hmm. do this, but uh, giving the, that the child is fine to to travel on an airplane. Okay, and have you just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. Chantilly, have you seen any problems with families traveling? No, not not many. Um, but I will say, because you said, you know, oftentimes, when do they, when would they even ask? But I think with the more conspicuous families, um, like when a child is transracially adopted mm-hmm. or when it's a sex family, they tend to be questioned a bit more, unfortunately. So we want to make sure that they're equipped for that. Okay. Okay. That makes, yeah, that makes good sense. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Being Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F 
then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, then U-P-P-O-R-T. Uh, again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. Okay, now we have talked about adopting an infant domestic private placement outside from a child of another state. Now we're going to talk about adopting a child through foster care from another state. All right, so first let me just ask Jim the obvious question. Is it possible to adopt a child from foster care in another state? Yes, absolutely it is. And really the foster care system needs, you know, family members or extended family or other persons interested in adoption from whatever resource it is to to uh, show an, an interest in adoption. It's, some of those kids might be free for adoption already and waiting for that prospective adoptive family. Some states have those directories where they can see pictures and outlines of heart galleries and things. Yeah. Heart mm-hmm. galleries. Exactly. And, and, and foster families are very welcome from one state to another. Um, there's also situations where sort of time is of the essence where a family member um, has heard that a child has come into protective custody um, through the department of social services or whatever that state's uh, protective services um, entity is. And there's a window of time. Perhaps the, the department of social services is actually looking for another resource other than foster care. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of a, of a child being placed with a, another family member. And there's a very short window if a family acts promptly out of state that they may be able to avoid the interstate compact on the placement of their children. But once the child comes into foster care, then, then, then any placement that's being made is being made by the court. Mm-hmm. And the court... Would, would thereby trigger ICPC. Okay. Let me, let me pause here before we get into the ICPC aspects because they get complicated. But, you know, it has not actually been my experience that I would say it is easy to adopt a child from foster care in another state. I find that when talking with many uh, adoptive parents that and, and social workers as well, that there is a hesitancy, if for no other reason than cost, it is more expensive for a state. Let's say a child is in Texas, and if they place the child in California, in a foster family in California, that is more expensive for Texas because of the supervision that is required and the, uh, and the cost associated with, with supervising. 
So I actually think it, and do tell people that who are looking to adopt from foster care that if possible, look for a child in your own state because it, it is generally going to be easier. Now, I'm curious to know, uh, now that I've, I've shared my opinion, uh, Jim, would you disagree with that from your experience? And then Chantilly, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I, I agree with you if that foster parent did not have a pre-existing relationship with the child. Yes. Okay. Good point. Good point. I would, I, I would completely agree with you. I, did, I don't hold, what I just said does not hold through kinship placements or through fictive kinship, which means that you have had a, the adult, the, 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 to be the prospective adoptive family has a relationship with that child. So yeah, I would totally agree with that. I'm thinking of unrelated, unknown foster families. Sure, sure. Then it's very, honestly, it's very difficult. It, I think for an out-of-state placement, typically it requires there to be some sort of nexus between your request and the child or the, the extended family. And it probably means that you need to have a lawyer in that state go and advocate for you because it's very hard to be out of state and get anybody's attention yes. unless you go straight to a, a, the court process. Chantilly, what is your experience in this area? I, I, that has been exactly what we hear is that if you're a foster parent in another state and you go to adopt U.S. kids and see a child there or go to that, just go to the Heart Gallery on your California resident and you go to the Heart Gallery in Texas and you find a child that you think and you send your, even if your agency sends your uh, profile to that caseworker, it's hard to get their attention. What's your experience? Yes, I would I would uh, completely agree. I've done that numerous times where families have identified a child that they they feel connected to in another state. And I've followed up numerous times with yeah. the agency in that state and either with no response or with very little helpful responses because um, it's just, it's a very complicated process. And yeah. we have had in the last four years, I think we've had one successful um, foster placement through an interstate. Um, and it was exactly how Jim described it. The family had to have an attorney in that state to be able to advocate for them and to be able to work on the inside to, to help the process move along within it's, that system. It's frustrating to me because if you, it, it's, it is confusing to perspective we get this question so often where somebody on our, we have a really large online support group uh, and Facebook and uh, people will come on saying, we were open to adopting an older child. We're open. You know, we're, we're, we are open to many, many different factors. We are looking, we found a child on one of the adopt us kids or uh, like I say, a heart gallery. And they are just shocked when they, we had a family not all that long ago that are a parent who said that they had sent out over a hundred requests on children and did not hear back from a single one. Now they were working independently. They did not have, they weren't working with an agency. We're going to come around to that in a minute. So anyway, it's a, it's something that I, I feel like we need to really educate people. on. All right. So let, with that, uh, with that caveat, uh, adopting from foster care across the states. We are saying that it's a hard road to hoe and that the if you don't have a connection to the child. Let me ask about fostering a child in another state. 
Uh, I think there's some misconceptions about that too. Chantilly, is it possible, or that's probably not the right way to say it, uh, does it happen often that you can foster a child? You live in California, can you foster a child and, uh, from Texas? Assuming you don't have a connection to the child, you're not a kinship, uh, you're not related to the child. Um, I do. It it might be possible. I haven't had any experience with that. Um, the one case that where it did happen, it was with the goal of adoption in mind. So it was a foster to adopt situation mm-hmm. where the child's uh, biological parents' rights had already been terminated. So it was really a move for permanency for the kiddo. Um, mm-hmm. And I can understand why it wouldn't be as common for a child to be fostered in another state, thinking about the idea of permanency and Mm -hmm. consistency for a kiddo when they are in the system, there's already such a great degree of loss that's Mm -hmm. been experienced. And what we really try to do is maintain any semblance of consistency and moving a child to a completely new environment uh, might really add to Mm -hmm. the trauma and the loss. So, So from that perspective, I can understand why it's not Well, and also to say nothing of the fact that when children first enter foster care, the goal is supposed to be to heal the birth family and reunify the the child to her, Mm -hmm. uh, to her parents. So if you are across state lines, that's just going to be more complicated because it's, unless you live right on the border, it's going to be complicated because it's not going to be easy. And you're working within two jurisdictions. It's it's just complicated. Mm -hmm. All right. Right. So. Uh, having acknowledged that it is not easy unless you have a connection, how Jim, how do you find a child, and or how would a, a a family that wants to adopt, how might they find a child in another state who is legally free to adopt, not not to foster, because we've already acknowledged that that one is is really not going to happen, or very often anyway. Well, let's revisit that just for a second, though. Um, I I probably should point out an area where the ICPC does not govern. There are some exempt persons from the mm. interstate compact compliance. And, and, and those situations, even if someone is out of state, there's really an open invitation to step up. May I outline that briefly, Dawn? Please. So the ICPC has requirements, but the, there are exempt persons such as certain relatives where a child can go from state A to state B without going to I, through ICPC. And that requirement also, if, if they are exempt, it means that that family is going to be less burdensome, if you will, to that DSS office. They're going to be happy to make that placement if they know they don't have to do the ICPC. And so those relatives are the child's parent step-parent, grandparent, adult brother or sister, and adult uncle and aunt. Those people are close enough family relationships that they don't have to go through ICPC so long as they're making the placement a similarly situated person, meaning a parent to a step-parent or a parent to a brother, adult brother and sister. That would be allowed and that wouldn't require ICPC involvement. Jim, let me ask a question. Does that still hold even if the child has entered foster care? The child has been removed from their biological parents. There is a grandparent two states over. 
does, yes. but the child is within the foster care system at this point, do they, can they be placed with the grandparent without the ICPC getting involved? In some states, there's a little grace period. South Carolina has one. So if, if they're still at what we call the probable cause stage, the child may be in foster care, but it's a preliminary status. Gotcha. And some states do allow, if it's done promptly, for there to be sort of a abbreviated home study process mm-hmm. um, and placement to be made wider, right away. Also, if, the, if another parent is out of state, so the non-offending parent is out of state, um, a new ICPC regulation states that unless the court has concerns about that parent's fitness, there can be placement without going through ICPC as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, if there's a new regulation, regulation number seven, that also set, recognizes that the time for an ICPC home study from foster care is so different than in private cases, because in private cases, you've already done your home study, and that's the time-consuming mm-hmm. thing. So the two weeks that Chantilly and I mentioned a moment ago is routine when it comes to private placements, especially infant placements. But when it comes to foster care, you don't have a head a heads up that your family member or someone, sure. a child might be coming into care. So there's often a six-month delay to get approval. That's kind of the term that's thrown out often, that it takes six months. And by that time, you know, the child is thinking it, it, you know, his or her own roots probably with a foster family. And so is it proper to disturb that? So this new regulation seven that went into place um, applies for kids that are under age four, and it gives a kind of time of the essence requirement to have that home study done if requested by the sending state to the receiving state. And it's supposed to be done within a month and a half. Um, my own experience with that is it, it is as often as not gets confused and delayed, but there is at least a mechanism, regulation number seven, where you can expedite um, for foster placement. But just to be clear, so the child is has been removed and is a young child. That child, regardless of the age, that child can't go once the child is in foster care, is not able just to be sent to his grandmother uh, without involving. The, uh, home study has to be involved and That's the mechanisms. Correct. Yeah, and the reason is it's because the, the the entity sending the child is the court, and mm-hmm. the court is not one of those exempt persons. Mm-hmm. If it had been done right before the child came into care, the birth mom said, "Okay." then send my child to my grandmother that lives, I mean, to my mother who lives in another state, that could be done without ICPC approval. But once, if you will, foster care has been triggered, mm-hmm. that means that it's the, the child is a ward of the state, which means the judge mm-hmm. would be sending and the judge would be violating ICPC if he or she did an ICPC placement without that approval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That, that makes, yes, that's how I have followed it. So Chantilly, oftentimes we talk about when adopting from foster care, one of the things that we stress is that there should be a slow transition from the child from the foster, the child's living with a foster family. And this is assuming, of course, that the foster family is is not going to become the adoptive family. 
So we encourage there mm-hmm. to be a slow transition with visitations, you know, starting off just getting to the, the adoptive family, getting to know the child just, you know, at a park or something, and then uh, longer periods, and then spending the afternoon, and then spending the night, and then spending the weekend. So a, a, a longer process that's considered ideal. It's considered best interest of the child. But how does that work if you are adopting a child in another state? So I I would say I mean, it all still applies, um, and I I prepare adoptive families to be ready to stay in that state for an extended period of time. Um, we had a situation I want to say maybe two years ago where an adoptive father stayed in Tennessee for a month and a half, and in that time he had an Airbnb for a little bit, but then actually lived in the home with the foster family so that he could yeah he lived he lived with them so that Mm -hmm. he could be with the child and the family to really get a sense of what the routine is and Mm -hmm. what is the child used to he would be able to emulate that in in their new space together when he brought the child home and it really gave him such great insight into who the child is and what what they responded to and what they didn't and what he decided to maintain um, in terms of what was in the best interest of the child. Um, and then after he came, he returned back to California. The, uh, the foster family actually came for a visit as well to kind of bookend. That's such a mm-hmm. weird way to say it, but to like end the transition so that the child could experience him and his space, but then he could also experience his foster family in the new space. So it could, it could wow. really feel smooth. That gives me goosebumps. It honestly does. That is such a child centered. That's also not a not, it is also, let's be honest, something that uh, many parents would not have the financial wherewithal to pull off. So mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. foster as well as adoptive. So, but that does seem like such but the theory, then you're saying, is, is but, but then unfortunately, the theory is still a, a, a gradual transition. The problem, of course, is reality sometimes intervenes and uh, makes it more difficult. But, but again, your point is well taken that uh, adoptive parents need to be prepared to spend at least some time in the child's environment uh, get for the child to get to know them. This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family at our website, creatingafamily.org, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners who not only believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre- and post-adoptive foster and kinship families, but they believe in that mission so much that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. One such partner is... Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption home studies, and post adoption and foster to adopt programs. You can find them and get more information about them at vistadelmar.org. Okay, Jim, so when adopting through foster care, how are uh, adoption subsidies handled? Generally speaking, there are uh, the vast majority of children adopted through foster care come with adoption subsidies, monthly payments to the adoptive family to help defray the cost of, of raising this child. 
So which state pays the subsidy if you're adopting from another state? Um, typically, it is the sending state where the subsidy will, will provide for the adopting parent. also want to point out to you that these subsidies are often ignored by fictive kin and by family placements when they are entitled to them. So these subsidies, um, let's say you're a relative that comes forward, you know, maybe you had a pre-existing relationship with the child, maybe you didn't, but you stepped forward after a child been in foster care. In most states, you can apply to become a foster parent and receive that board subsidy. In South Carolina, it's probably something around $400, but if there's a difficulty in terms of special needs for the child, there could be enhanced board rates in the $1,200 per month range. Mm -hmm. um, so it's certainly something, the way I look at it is, it's really the child's. This is something mm -hmm. the child has obviously gone through trauma in order to be in foster care. So the, to me, I think of, when I talk to my clients who are a little bit um, uncomfortable or they awkward about advocating for those benefits, my typical response is you're not advocating for you, you're advocating for the child. And the, mm -hmm. and often, you know, Medicaid and other expenses come with a placement. It, it could also be things that are not covered by Medicaid. For instance, in South Carolina, there's usually a 1500 to $2,000 uh, $2, yearly set aside for those things that are needed but are not covered by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Those are good things for a family and a family that may not need it at the time, but we don't know what the future holds. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to have that safety net for a child makes good sense to me. It does. One of the complicating factors is that oftentimes uh, kinship families, for various reasons, don't want to become foster. They don't want to go through the foster. They don't want to become trained foster parents. And that is required uh, in order to receive the full subsidy, although there are there are different subsidies that are available in some states have uh, for uh, for kinship families, and that may be changing too because there's more emphasis now on placing children with, right. with relatives. So I anticipate. I, I, I agree with you that there are some families that don't want to do it, but I also think there are a lot of families that when your DSS caseworker says you don't want to do that, do you? Because it costs the, you know, yeah, it takes a lot point. of time. Yeah. Good um, point. You know, they suggest the answer to them. And I think that families should advocate for themselves and advocate for the child and not necessarily just accept that um, kind of pro forma response from your caseworker. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Chantilly Wijaya Singha and Jim Thompson for talking with us today about a adopting a child from another state. Keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption, our foster care professional, also, the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.